Maybe you've heard of Slack, but what is it? Slack is your new HQ. One place for everyone at your company to find answers, share updates, and stay caught up. Slack, where work happens. Get started at slack.com. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Eamon. I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mayhem Money. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job's not just to entertain, but to educate, teach you, and put this kind of stuff in context. Call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Okay, now we got something else to worry about. We have partisan acrimony per share. And I would love it if we could value stocks based on earnings and dividends and buybacks rather than political turbulence like you just heard rancor early in the evening. But I don't make the rules. And after what is definitely a rough day where the Dow declined 142 points, S&P lost 0.84%, NASDAQ nosedived 1.46%. Partisan acrimony? What can I tell you? It is reigning supreme. The Democrats suddenly got serious about trying to impeach President Trump based on what is obviously some ill-advised dealings with Ukraine. Uh, allegedly to dig up dirt on Joe Biden. Now that Speaker Pelosi is launching a formal impeachment inquiry, I don't think the Democrats will be appeased until the House of Representatives votes to, to send the cases to the Senate. We're going to see this go to the Senate. Before you freak out, for those of you who don't remember civic classes, let me explain. Even if the House impeaches Trump, you can't remove a sitting president without a two-thirds majority in the Senate. So until the Democrats can convince at least 20 Republican senators to turn on their guy, impeachment remains a sideshow. Is that possible? Look, you can never rule out anything these days, can you? But I bet Trump could confess to being the Zodiac killer, and he wouldn't lose more than 10 or 15 senators. Jeez. Still, I get why people sold today. It made a lot of sense. We haven't seen this level of partisan acrimony in the United States since the Civil War. And when things in Washington turn hostile, that can and always will hurt the stock market. Plus, this whole thing was very sudden. When I spoke to Nancy Pelosi just last week, she was adamant that she didn't want to impeach. She said over and over that she wanted to beat Trump at the ballot box, not the jury stand. But then we learned about this Ukraine story. And apparently that was a bridge too far for the speaker and her more moderate colleagues. Although, of course, you can see the market started going down during a very, very serious and stern Trump speech. But then, boom, what can I say? You can see what happened. So say what you want about Pelosi. She knows how to corral her unruly caucus. She wouldn't launch this inquiry if she didn't think she had the votes to impeach. But then it gets sent to the Senate, no matter how ugly the evidence might be. I need you to recognize that, uh, that the Senate will most likely acquit. How much will that matter to the stock market? You know what? We've seen this movie before. When the Republican House of Representatives impeached President Clinton, everyone knew he'd be acquitted in the Senate. So how did the Clinton impeachment impact the market? Let me give you a little history lesson. First, the House Judiciary Committee needs to look into the president's alleged misdeeds and render some findings. Or maybe they'll create a special committee to do the same thing, like they did for Watergate. Now, Clinton had already been under investigation by Ken Starr for years. So in early October of 1998, the Judiciary Committee voted to recommend an impeachment inquiry. The Dow shed 0.8% that day. The S&P dropped 1.4%. The Nasdaq got obliterated, plummeting 4.8%. That, honestly, I think is analogous to today, where the Nasdaq once again took the brunt of the pain. There's something about these political issues that seems to impact tech far more than any other sector of the stock market. But after that, the initial decline, the market recovered and it recovered rapidly with tech leading the way. 
Remember, this was during the middle stages of the dot-com bubble. Between the Judiciary Committee's recommendation and the House vote to impeach Clinton roughly two months later, what do you think happened? The Dow zoomed 16%. The S&P surged 21%. The Nasdaq skyrocketed 39%. That was a remarkable move, although it was aided by an emergency uh, rate cut by the Fed. Still, if you let the impeachment story shake you out of the market, well, guess what happened? You, you missed one of the greatest moves of all time. In fact, the, the first trading day after the impeachment vote, the Dow rallied 1%, S&P gained 1.2%, NASDAQ jumped 2.5%. It was a non-issue. By the time President Clinton was officially acquitted by the Senate, which, remember, was a foregone conclusion, the Dow moved up another 3.2%, S&P advanced 2.3%, NASDAQ climbed 8.6%. Every pullback during that period, everyone was a buying opportunity. Overall, stocks absolutely crushed every other asset class during the Clinton impeachment. Why? Because impeachment, well, it was a sideshow. It was kabuki. What really mattered was the booming dot-com business and the emergency rate cut from the Alan Greenspan's Fed that caused the market to catch fire. If this turns out uh, like 1998 all over again, then you may want to buy at the moment of maximum rancor. I don't know if we're there yet. It was kind of day one of the rancor. That's why I say probably not. I suspect we have to mark time, get to a more oversold position, and start hearing the bears whine about all of this political conflict is going to definitely lead to a recession. (laughs) Of course, it's not a perfect analogy. The market was in a better place back then as we ended up inflating the dot-com bubble throughout the impeachment proceedings. Still, I think you can buy the stocks of companies with good fundamentals if they keep getting slammed by Washington worries, especially tech stocks. Isn't that what history just showed you? Now, it's not just impeachment that's hurting this market, though. There's a newfound sense that Senator Elizabeth Warren is breaking away from the pack in the Democratic primaries. And she's no friend of big business. She's no friend of wealth. But we're still so far away from the primaries, let alone the general election, that I think these predictions... You have to classify them as premature. Plus, as someone who's followed Warren's career, I refuse to go along with the new conventional wisdom that a Warren administration would somehow spell the end of capitalism. Could it bring on a bear market? Well, you know what? How many days have we seen since Trump came on that people come on TV and said, hey, we're about to start a bear market. So sure, I could bring on a bear market. Yes, she wants to raise taxes on the rich. Definitely, I expect she'll want to raise capital gains taxes, too, possibly to much higher levels. Equal ordinary income. That wouldn't be great for stocks, but it's not communism. That said, if you believe that an impeachment vote will hurt Trump's reelection prospects, something that actually is still unclear, then you're likely to sell if you have big capital gains and you're afraid of Warren's tax plan and you want lower taxes on the capital gains. Those could be people who are selling. But is this a sensible strategy? I don't think so. We've been raising cash for my charitable trust, telling members of the ActionAlertsPlus.com club that the S&P 500 needed to work off that overbought condition that we saw last week before we could start buying. Even after today's pullback, this market's still a long way from being oversold. You know I like markets that are oversold. When you're as overbought as we were last week, meaning we come up too far too fast, I think it's best to wait until the pendulum swings back in the other direction. In other words, too early to start buying. I scrutinized this market all day and found almost nothing that intrigued me. We're just up too high. There are too many stocks making new highs and only two making new lows, FedEx and Fox Corp. We simply don't have the kind of washout we need to see before you can presume that the sell on the impeachment news is in the market. Oh, yes, you can still nail things like Nike up big after the bell. Good gross margins. Excellent Chinese sales. But I don't want to be so sanguine in the face of what I think people will be talking about all tomorrow. Like it or not, wrong or right, as a constitutional crisis. 
not a Nike buying opportunity. The bottom line, I say there's no hurry to start buying here. Although, by the way, remember, history says that you're going to have to try to pull the trigger soon rather than be left behind. All aboard! Today's merely day one of Speaker Pelosi's sudden pro-impeachment pivot. No harm in waiting until this market gets oversold before you put a lot of money to work. Ask me, we're still not there yet. Up next, my exclusive with Disney CEO Bob Iger. Stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Maybe you've heard of Slack, but what is it? Slack is your new HQ. One place for everyone at your company to find answers, share updates, and stay caught up. Slack, where work happens. Get started at slack.com. Recently, I had the chance to sit down with Bob Iger. He's the chairman and CEO of the Walt Disney Company. He's got a new book out called The Ride of a Lifetime. The proceeds from this book will be donated to educational initiatives aimed at fostering more diversity in the field of journalism, something that is greatly needed for certain. Take a look. All right, Bob, first of all, play with the open hand. I love this book, and I loved it because I love business, but I also love decency and respect. And throughout it, those two themes do dominate. The people who show respect and are decent are winners in this book. Well, thank you. First of all, thank you for reading the book, and thanking, uh, thank you for pointing that out. Yes, I think uh, treating people with respect and being decent uh, goes a long way in terms of a person's success and in terms of a company's success. Companies that value their people, that respect their people, that are decent, are typically successful companies. You seem to treat everybody the same. I'm not kidding. The employees are treated the same way as Steve Jobs is, treated the same way as, your, as Rune Ar- the great Rune Arledge. It just seems to be a theme of how you treat people. Look, I started out at the very bottom, an entry-level position, $150 a week employee, uh, worked my way up over all these years, now with a company 45 years, to uh, you know, have the opportunity to run this great company. I still remind myself of who I was when I started, and uh, you know, I try not to lose sight of the fact that um, while my title has changed, that I haven't really changed that much as a person. So I've, I feel it's important to have empathy and to relate to other people who are in similar positions that I was in along the way. And yet at the same time, someone who we think is cantankerous, someone we think is tough and uh, unrelenting, Steve Jobs, seems to have some crafted a relationship more than a friendship with you. Tell us about it, because I don't know anyone else who had it. Well, first of all, I think you can be... Uh, fair and decent and still be tough at times. You have to make tough decisions. Uh, My relationship with Steve came about uh, because um, I became CEO and I thought we should 
put our television shows on, on, on some platform, some digital platform, and he showed me the video iPod, quaint little device with a little screen on it. That led to my posing the question to him about whether he'd ever consider selling Pixar to us, and the rest is history. He became our largest shareholder, a member of the board, something he never wanted me to remind him of. He preferred that our relationship was not tied to stock ownership or a board seat. And he ended up becoming not only a friend, but in many respects a mentor, even though he was younger than I. He, he taught me some great lessons, and we just bonded over a number of things common interests, uh, common desire to create great things, uh, common desire to um, wow people, you know, to surprise people, which is what Disney's been all about from its very beginning. The uh, moment where he tells you that he will not live is a very tough part of the book. Yeah. Uh, it's obvious that you have tremendous respect for him. It's, Apple has since prospered, I believe, but just say, tell us about how special this man was and how otherworldly he seemed. Well, the story that you talk about uh, is one that I remember vividly. It was about an hour before we were announcing the acquisition of Pixar, $7.4 billion acquisition. Asked me to go for a walk, sat on a bench. We were at Pixar, put his arm around me, and told me that his cancer, which he had had and the world had known about, had returned. And he was giving me an opportunity to back out of the deal. Of course, you know, I looked at my watch and the clock was ticking loudly. And I had no idea how to react. And I asked him for a little bit more information. He ultimately gave me that information but told me I had to keep it confidential. Only his wife and his doctor knew at that point. And I thought, wow, what an incredibly generous thing for him to do, uh, to give me that chance to be so honest, so candid, so trusting. And, um, of course, I decided that I would go forward. Uh, I didn't know how I would ever explain <laughs> to my board or others that I had suddenly gotten cold feet when I was arguing to do this for a number of months. Um, but I thought that it was not only an incredible moment for me and in terms of our relationship, but it spoke volumes about who he was. Were you uh, surprised when I'm reading it, I'm thinking at that moment he's going to say, and look, I need you to be the steward of Apple. I would like you to merge with us. No, we never talked about that. Um, we spent a lot of time in a conference room outside of his office and walking on beaches in Hawaii and other things, musing about things we might be able to do together. We never talked about being one company, but he loved Disney a lot. Right. And obviously he loved Pixar. He loved storytelling, and he loved the combination of storytelling and technology. Was, you know, he called liberal arts and technology. Right. You know, that they, I think he said at one point that made his heart sing. Yes. You know, yes. the combination of art and technology. That's what Pixar was, by the way. And so I mused in the book, uh, and now Steve has gone right. eight years, that had he lived, and I, I think there's a good chance we would have certainly talked about right. being one company. Whether we would have done it or not, I don't know. But it's all conjecture. At this it, point. In the meantime, I think Tim Cook has just been unbelievable. I don't think he gets nearly the credit. You just resigned from the board yeah. for re reasons. Do you think that he has continued the legacy? Because I find Wall Street thinks that there's a before and after with Steve Jobs. I look at it the opposite. I see tremendous innovation. I see so much greatness coming out of that company. You're on the board. What do you think? Well, I don't think I, you could even talk about it as a, uh, from a board perspective. Just as a consumer, I use those products, and I want those products. They, talk about a wow factor. They continue to wow me. Apple continues to raise the bar in terms of quality and quality of service and experience and design. And I don't think uh, they've lost the step at all. You know, they went through a tough period of mourning when Steve went. It had to be extremely tough. I came on the board. 
about that time, so I saw some of it firsthand. I think Tim, Tim has done a great job, and no matter what direction you look, no matter how you, you point, I think you'd conclude that that company is one of the great companies in the world. And Steve's gone for eight years, and yes, he found it, and it's his company in some ways. But you know, what Steve did was long ago at this point, particularly given the pace of change. Absolutely. Now, I wanted to ask you about your... Um doing things that I think are not necessarily short-term in the interest of the dollar and cents at Disney, but longer-term has kept the brand to be what it is, the way you treat people, the humility that you show, the things that you do for, for people who work there, which most companies don't do, and you don't talk about well, we talk about it internally. Running a big public company is obviously complex. A lot of CEOs would say the same thing, particularly one like Disney with so many different businesses, so many different touch points. And you have to have your, uh, your investors or your shareholders in mind, their interest in mind in most cases, and you have to have your customers' interest in mind, and you have to have your employees' interest in mind. And there's a delicate balance there. You, you can't falter in any one direction. And so we've tried really hard because... Look, the company, Disney, is known for the product that it creates, and that product emanates from people, from creative people and people who work at our theme parks. And, you know, I could point in so many directions. And you have to treat them well and give them opportunities. So we created a program that we call Aspire, where we earmarked $150 million, and it's free education for our hourly employees in the U.S., 88,000 of them. And 40% of them have signed up and said, you know, put me in. It's free education whether it's vocational education, high school equivalency, college degree, graduate degree, all you have to do is be working for the company. And the number of people, 8,000 are already doing this, that have come forward to me and said, that is creating opportunity for us. You know, that's putting your employees, if not first, at least top of mind, along with your customers and your investors. And you have to do that. And, and Disney, too. People want Disney to be a good citizen of the world. And that starts with being a good citizen in the places that you work. Yeah, I'm going to say it because the roundtable, this round to be getting a lot of credit now for recognizing things that Disney's done for years, that you've done for years. There are revelations in the book, and I need to, fle- I need to flesh some out. Uh, there's a moment where you say, listen, we got to buy Twitter. And then you just walk away from Twitter. Why? Well, I got cold feet for the right reasons. Yeah, but then I, you didn't tell us. Well, I, was taking, I thought we would be taking on responsibility that we, that we shouldn't take on. It was too complex in terms of Twitter's place in the world and, and, and everything that Twitter is used for, and it just didn't feel Disney to me. It was interesting because we thought it would be a good platform to distribute our content on and to get closer to consumers, which is critical in today's business environment. But I thought you know, there are things Disney does well. And there are things Disney doesn't do well, but there are things Disney shouldn't even try to do well. And that's one of them. And that was one of them. All right. There's a moment where you're talking about reading FDR and JFK inaugural speeches. You're reading the RFK Indianapolis speech. You're doing things because you're thinking about running for president, but you didn't. Right. I kicked it around. I did a lot of reading. I like speeches, by the way. I would have done that had I not been kicking it around. A bunch of people came forward and said, hey, why not? I happen to have believed that America was ready for an outsider, someone that didn't come from the system. Donald Trump is certainly a product of that. And I'm a patriot at heart. I love this country. Look, I'm, in many respects, the American dream, the lower middle class kid who ended up as the CEO of Disney by working hard. And so I kicked it around. But then uh, Rupert and I started talking, and we ended up, Rupert Murdoch, we ended up buying the assets of 21st Century Fox, and I agreed to stay longer at Disney and 
The rest is history. There's a lot of metaphors in the book. One of them I like is from my, my, uh, my boss, Brian Roberts. You have a, at one point, someone bursts in, Xenia bursts in and says, they went hostile. Yes. And it could have been an ugly moment. And then 50 pages later, you're sharing a car with Brian Roberts. Like nothing happened. I mean, you seem to have a resilience and no resentment. Well, I think resentment in many respects is just a waste of energy, whether it's, you know, psychic energy or physical energy. I have a nice relationship with Brian Roberts. I actually respect Brian Roberts. There'd be no value at all in me having resent or being, being, being resentful of him. At all. He's built a great company with his dad. So be it. We're competitors. We're also partners. They distribute right. a lot of our content. I have other things to worry about. All right. Let me talk about something that I, I wish you had extended in the book, but you're not political other than that moment where you're thinking about it. If you were in charge of trade, uh, you have the best Chinese experience. I don't know how many. You said you've been to China more than almost anybody, I think, in our country. Could you solve this? I don't know. I, I, I you don't know, know the Chinese. I've managed, uh, I've managed through my role and with others to create a great relationship uh, with the government of China and with the people that we've interacted with, including, by the way, our customers there. Mm-hmm. Where they love Shanghai Disneyland. They love America. Uh, and so I don't know. I'm not going to presume that I would know how to deal with the trade crisis or, the, or, or, or trade issues between us and China. I do think, though, that a... A good relationship, a, a, a relationship that is valued both ways between China and the United States on trade and other issues is vital. Okay. Now, I want to tip uh, the hat to someone who works with me, my partner, David Faber, who you mentioned gave you a holy crap moment that I think is one of the funnier moments in the book. Yes. In the middle of the uh, competition, shall we say, uh, between us and Comcast, uh, for the Fox assets, uh, I, had, I was in Europe and I was actually headed to our office in London and uh, in a car and my phone rang, my, my mobile phone, my Apple phone, by the way. Okay. <laughs> and uh, it was David. He said, well, that's some news. Do you want to comment? And I said, what news? And he told me that, that Brian had thrown in the towel or they had pulled out. And I said, holy crap, I guess I can say that on, on Mad Money. Uh, yes, <laughs> David uh, was a newsbreaker there. In a yeah, big that way. Was, but it's impressive reporting. I thought it was. I thought it was great that you gave him credit. You give credit out uh, in a way that makes me think that you know it doesn't cost anything to give credit. Throughout the book, you credit people with your greatness, things that have worked. Again, tell people this is a great, a tremendous business lesson. Well, it's not you make about people cost. feel good. It's not about cost. It's about the truth. You know, I, I, yes, I run the Walt Disney Company, but there are 230,000 employees. Uh, I, I don't come close to really running the company. <laughs> they run the company, and I have a great senior team. Most of the big decisions of the company are made by them. I, of course, I get involved, and I'm there to support them. I'm there to challenge them. You know, I'm, I can be demanding of them, certainly when it comes to quality and, and behaving with integrity. But uh, I give credit not because it's cheap to do, because it's, it's the truth. Apple, uh, bittersweet, I think, because you had you felt Leaving like you the had to leave, be, yeah. um, because I feel look, Apple's going to have a powerhouse entertainment slate. Uh, why isn't that something that Disney wants to be affiliated with? Well, I uh, it was it was hard for me to leave the Apple board. Uh, Steve did talk to me about joining the board before he died, and because he had been on the Disney board, right. he. I couldn't be on the Apple board. You know, it's, it's not considered appropriate. I think it actually, I think the New York Stock Exchange doesn't allow it. The interlocking okay. board okay. memberships, I believe that's what it is. Um, but when he died, I was asked to, 
uh, essentially, you know, become replace him on the board, mm-hmm. not replace him right. in, 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 in total, but. Um, and I just loved, I loved my eight years on the Apple board. I learned so much. And I, you know, I think I brought something into the boardroom, too, because of my perspective. You know, we'd love to be associated with Apple. Uh, they do distribute our content and our apps. Uh, the reason I got off the board is as they got more and more into creating television shows and movies, it became more and more clear to me that our paths were conflicting rather than converging. And I just thought it was, it was the right thing to do. The business is still relatively small for Apple, but it's meaningful to Disney, and it wasn't right. One last thing, that uh, a tremendous theme throughout uh, that the great leaders have, I've discovered, is uh, optimism. You talk about the, the negative power of pessimism and the positive optimism. I just want to leave us. I find so many people are pessimistic right now. It's driving me crazy. You have made, remained optimistic through all sorts of turmoil, including personal turmoil in the book, tragedy to the theme park, uh, a difficulty, uh, difficult relationships with people, someone who said you're going to basically you're never going to advance in Disney. And throughout the book, you the theme is optimism. How do people maintain it? These days? Well, I think, by the way, optimism is a core principle of good leadership. As you know, people just don't want to follow someone who's a pessimist. And I remember as a kid seeing World War Two movies, you know, and you'd have some captain or lieutenant or officer of some sort saying, okay, we're going over this hill. You know, come on, fellas. If that guy is a pessimist, who's going to go over the hill with him? You know, and if you, I think if you you equate that to business, it's in many respects, you know, somewhat similar. It's It's an interesting world. Change is so rapid, so profound that it creates a huge amount of anxiety. In some cases, cynicism. In some cases, people view the world as dystopian in nature. That's actually why I like Disney so much, because what do we do? We manufacture fun. You know, we enlighten people. We tell stories that are optimistic, where the future is bright, good will triumph over evil, there's value in adventure, the value of love, friendship, family, respecting your elders. I mean, I could go on and on. That's Disney. In this world, what a better time to be in this business. And it's actually, I just met with 325 Disney executives in Florida, at Orlando, and I said to them, another reason to be optimistic, there are many if you're at Disney, is that factor. Look where we are in the world today. We ever need it. Okay, well, that is, that's Bob Iger. I, like, I need to tell you. The chairman and CEO of Disney. And the book is The Ride of a Lifetime. And I want you to take The Ride of a Lifetime. I learned a ton. It's never too late to learn, even my age. Younger people must definitely read this. It's going to change your mind about business and life. Thank you so much, Bob. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter.
I've been railing about the rise of ETFs for years, but sometimes the fact that everything trades as part of a larger basket creates some fabulous buying opportunities for you. Take GW Pharmaceuticals, GWPH. This is one we've liked for a long time, a British drug company with a twist. They study cannabis to find new medicines. Even though this is a legitimate pharmaceutical company with a terrific anti-seizure drug, Epidiolex, its stock has been included in all sorts of marijuana ETFs, which means it's been hammered in recent months because the actual cannabis cohort has been absolutely Awful. In fact, GW Farm is now down nearly 40% from its highs back in May, even though the company is in great shape. They reported two fantastic quarters in a row. The U.S. launch of Epidiolex has been a massive success. And just yesterday, they got approval to sell this thing in Europe. But what happens? The stock down another 8% this week, weighed down once again by the cannabis ETFs and the cannabis companies that we follow, which have been horrendous. I think you might be getting a remarkable buying opportunity if you think longer term. But don't take it from me. Let's check in with Justin Gover, the CEO of GW Pharmaceuticals, to get a better read on how his company's doing and where it's headed. Mr. Gover, welcome back to Man Money. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for having me back. Well, Justin, give us a size of uh, the European market, because I have to believe if it's anything like the American market, you're going to have a lot of success here. Yes, well, just yesterday, as, as your introduction mentioned, we've yet reached another historic milestone for this company, for patients, and for the field of cannabinoid science. You know, we have 28 countries now in Europe that have approved Epidiolex. We'll be launching these countries over the next year or two. Um, and there's you know, a market of 500 million people in Europe, and we're very excited. We've obviously had a great experience launching this medication in the United States, benefiting thousands of patients, beating Wall Street estimates by quite some distance. And really, I think the company's in the best shape it's ever been. That's what I wanted to ask you about. The Wall Street estimates were so low. Does that mean that Wall Street didn't realize, A, that there were more people who had this affliction, or B, that there was good awareness and therefore you had better sales at the very beginning than anyone could expect? Well, I think awareness of this medication has been as high as I think any medication that I've seen in a pre-launch environment. But I think more important than awareness has been the fact that this is a treatment that is desperately needed by this patient population. Physicians see this as a new advance in epilepsy care and therefore are placing it um, at the forefront of their thinking when it comes to treating uh, these types of epilepsies that for quite some time now have had very few, if any, treatment options. Can you please tell people what it means to be a child of eight or nine who has epilepsy uh, before GW Pharma and after? Well, I'm fortunate as a parent that I I don't have children with epilepsy, but I've met hundreds of of families that are in this position. And I have to say, I I admire each and every one of them. Um, As a parent, looking at at children who have seizures daily and who have exhausted um, treatment options as well as other form of non-therapeutic interventions such as diets, there really has been a sense of hopelessness. And I think what Epidiolex has provided is a renewed sense of hope. And I think we're seeing that in the United States with thousands of patients now on this medication. And I think the world is there ready to accept this also. Europe has embraced the prospect of Epidiolex. And obviously there's a wider world beyond Europe as well. So I think the the eyes of the world have been on Epidiolex, on the prospects for CBD within the field of epilepsy. And families with these conditions are united 
in their enthusiasm for this as a treatment and the desire to see if this medication can benefit their children. Right now, I have been as enthusiastic about you and your company now for more than 100 points. I have to admit I didn't call the top because I don't want to. But I do want to get that play devil's advocate. There's an SVB Larink piece that said, here's some of the causes of the weakness. One, Epidiolex sales growth in the upcoming quarters could slow as a result of fewer new patient starts on the product. Possibility? Uh, look, we've had a one, uh, an amazing first half of this year. I am very confident about the second half of this year and the outer years. As I mentioned earlier, we're in the best possible position that I've ever seen for this organization. So it's hard for me to construct a scenario where things aren't going to continue to get better for this company. Like any organization, I'm sure we'll face some challenges in the future. But at the forefront of this area of science, regulators around the world approving this medication, significant demand and interest in our epidiolex product and in and at the forefront of a new area of science i, I think the prospects for this company are, are truly exciting and i uh, can reassure you and uh, the, the investment community that I, I think there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic and very few to be uh, pessimistic right now and if you had uh, a crystal ball how many other different illnesses do you think that a version of epidiolex could help patients well, the field of cannabinoids, I think through the approval and recognition of the epidiolex uh, science and an unmet need, has opened the door to the pipeline that we have at GW Pharmaceuticals for cannabinoids. And the biggest dilemma we face in our R&D organization is actually just so many opportunities and prioritizing those opportunities. So I wouldn't say the opportunities are endless, but there are numerous, uh, whether they're in psychiatric conditions, in other neurology conditions mm-hmm. such as multiple sclerosis, uh, spinal cord injury, uh, a range of childhood conditions, epilepsy, broader epilepsy, autism. The list does go on. And I think if I look at the next 20 years, we've been in a company uh, existence for 20 years, looking at the next 20, it's very realistic to expect uh, a range of new first-in-class treatments based off cannabinoids in a, across a range of disease areas, and we are the company to make that happen. I see very few alternative organizations that I think have the wherewithal, the science, the reputation, and the track record to make cannabinoids a reality across other disease states. I couldn't agree more, and I thank you so much, Justin Gover, CEO of GW Pharma, for coming on Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Thank you. This stock is being pulled down by inferior companies who are posers. That's why I like GW Pharma. Mad Money's back after the break. It is time! It's time for the light round! And then the lightning runs over. Are you ready, skiing? Dad, it's time for the lightning round! Because we're Art in California. Art! Yo, what's up? Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Stamps.com. STMP. STMP? Oh, man, that's just all that is is gigantic short squeeze. We do not play short squeeze, long or short. Too hard. Don't fight. Don't fight. Okay, let's go to Janine in Pennsylvania. Janine. Hi, Jim. Love the show. It's always so much fun. You're very kind, Janine. Thank you. So, um, I have a stock that's been very good to me, but I wonder if it has a ceiling, and it's uh, Aqua Medic. 
Aqua America, and the symbol is WTR. Yeah, I've known Aqua America all my life, actually, literally from 1983 when I first took an interest in it under a different name, and I think it's terrific. I think you should own it. I wish all stocks were one. Aqua America. And by the way, they have good water. That's where I grew up drinking their water. And that's where I became just like I am. Let's go to Bob in Tennessee. Please, Bob. Jim. Bob Dr. Rooney. Kramer. Yo. My stock is Southern Company. It's up 45% this year. Well, can I say it's a, it's a utility? We could be bringing about a lot of other utilities. I think, you know, look, it, it's yields four. That's still good to go. I like Dominion at 4.5, also 52-week high. Remember, because of this inverted yield curve and how low rates are, all utilities are stars. Alex in California. Alex. Booyah, Big Jim. How you doing? I'm doing well, Ski Daddy. How about you? Doing good. I know it's been one heck of a busy day for you and your staff. I just want to say they've done phenomenal on the phone. They sure have. The staff has been overworked and underpaid. There, I said it. Underfed. <laughs> Anna Tevka. What's up? Hey, I just had a quick question on Qualcomm. They just acquired RF360, and I was just wondering what your thoughts are on the long-term I like Qualcomm. 3.3% yield. Aggressive buyback. They're going to come back. May not be instant, but it is creeping higher. How about we go to Dave in Arizona? Dave! Hey, big booyah from Surprise, Arizona. Well, I thought so. Let's go. Okay, SMG. It's a lawn care company. I know SMG. It's also a cannabis company. It's going up too far, too fast. 64% increase. I'm going to have to say, don't buy. Don't don't buy. Don't buy. Don't buy. I like the company very much. And that, Legend, good of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. What really happened on Friday when the Chinese trade delegation pulled out of their trip to Montana? Why the heck were we told that the Chinese had canceled when it turns out our government canceled it? Something we only learned yesterday from Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin in an awkward press conference with the president. If you roll back the tape, this was big news. The averages got pulverized on Friday afternoon because the cancellation made it seem like the broader negotiations with China weren't going well. Hey, stands to reason. But you know what? It turns out that the Chinese didn't cancel. We did. So where did this story even come from? I've gone over every bit of news. It seems the original source was someone named Nicole Rolf the director of national affairs for the Montana Farm Bureau Federation, who implied that the Chinese were to blame and China said nothing to contradict it. Here's the thing. The Montana Farm Bureau Federation, it isn't a federal agency. It's not even a state agency. It's an industry group. Yet somehow this person became the linchpin for a chain of information that caused the whole market to roll over. Look, I don't blame Nicole Rolf. She doesn't even work for the government. But I do blame the Treasury Department and the Office of U.S. Trade Representative. Apparently, they asked the Chinese to cancel because our trade representative, Robert Lighthizer, only found out at the last minute we weren't prepared, which is fine. What's not fine is that nobody from the federal government thought to disseminate that information to the press. They heard the Montana farm lobby blame the Chinese, and they, they let that story stand. Worse, they didn't even tell the president. Consider the totally bizarre interaction between President Trump and Secretary Mnuchin at the press conference yesterday. It sure sounded like Trump accepted the media's explanation that the Chinese canceled the Montana Goodwill mission out of nowhere. How the heck was the President of the United States getting this information from the Montana Farm, Montana Farm Bureau Federation rather than um, his cabinet? 
Worst of all, this story got virtually no follow-up press, even in Bozeman, Montana, which just shows you how murky this darn process is. The moment the bogus news that China had canceled the trip broke, well, the market sold off. How could Mnuchin and Lighthouse look at that action and say nothing to the president? Or the market in general. Hey, listen, if you wanted to sabotage the trade talks, this would be a great way to do it. But the president of the stock market deserved better than this ridiculous misdirection play. My ultimate takeaway, don't get your hopes up about a trade deal until you see it in writing. Because until we get an actual deal, it's impossible to tell what's really going on. I wish I knew what Lighthizer and Mnuchin were up to here. Was this some kind of standoff between the Hawks and the Doves? Were they trying to avoid blame? Or were they just clueless? And did they just not even inform the president of the United States? I don't know. Neither do you. So the next time you hear some story about the trade negotiations from a random non-governmental source, hey, maybe you should take it with a grain of salt. Stick with Kramer. What really happened on Friday when the Chinese trade delegation pulled out of their trip to Montana? Why the heck were we told that the Chinese had canceled when it turns out our government canceled it? Something we only learned yesterday from Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin in an awkward press conference with the president. If you roll back the tape, this was big news. The averages got pulverized on Friday afternoon because the cancellation made it seem like the broader negotiations with China weren't going well. Hey, stands to reason. But you know what? It turns out that the Chinese didn't cancel. We did. So where did this story even come from? I've gone over every bit of news. It seems the original source was someone named Nicole Rolfe the director of national affairs for the Montana Farm Bureau Federation, who implied that the Chinese were to blame and China said nothing to contradict it. Here's the thing. The Montana Farm Bureau Federation, it isn't a federal agency. It's not even a state agency. It's an industry group. Yet somehow this person became the linchpin for a chain of information that caused the whole market to roll over. Look, I don't blame Nicole Rolfe. She doesn't even work for the government. But I do blame the Treasury Department and the Office of U.S. Trade Representative. Apparently, they asked the Chinese to cancel because our trade representative, Robert Lighthizer, only found out at the last minute we weren't prepared, which is fine. What's not fine is that nobody from the federal government thought to disseminate that information to the press. They heard the Montana farm lobby blame the Chinese, and they, they let that story stand. Worse, they didn't even tell the president. Consider the totally bizarre interaction between President Trump and Secretary Mnuchin at the press conference yesterday. It sure sounded like Trump accepted the media's explanation that the Chinese canceled the Montana Goodwill mission out of nowhere. How the heck was the President of the United States getting this information from the Montana Farm, Montana Farm Bureau Federation rather than um, his cabinet? Worst of all, this story got virtually no follow-up press, even in Bozeman, Montana, which just shows you how murky this darn process is. The moment the bogus news that China had canceled the trip broke, well, the market sold off. How could Mnuchin and Lighthouse look at that action and say nothing to the president or the market in general? Hey, listen, if you wanted to sabotage the trade talks, this would be a great way to do it. But the president of the stock market deserved better than this ridiculous misdirection play. My ultimate takeaway, don't get your hopes up about a trade deal until you see it in writing. Because until we get an actual deal, it's impossible to tell what's really going on. I wish I knew what Lighthizer and Mnuchin were up to here. Was this some kind of standoff between the Hawks and the Doves? Were they trying to avoid blame or were they just clueless? And did they just not even inform the president of the United States? I don't know. Neither do you. So the next time you hear some story about the trade negotiations from a random non-governmental source, hey, maybe you should take it with a grain of salt. Stick with Kramer.
Why do I say don't give up on the market? Okay, so we had all this stuff today, and then Nike reports, and it's a beautiful quarter. We have all this stuff today, and then Cintas, which is the uniform company reports, and it's a monster quarter. And both stocks go up. We could sit here and be paralyzed. We could say, woe is me. We could be really unhappy. We could be miserable like most of the populace because of what's going on in Washington. Or we can look for the, the stocks of great American companies that continue to deliver, including Nike, by the way, in China, in Western Europe, in the United States, and Omnichannel online. Or we can say, no, I can't. I'm too scared. I'm opting to look and listen and hear the good stories. Like I said, it's always a bull market summer. I promise I'll find just for you right here on Man Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.